This is uh, December 18, 1958. Uh, Mrs. George Tatro of Springfield, Vermont, is going to sing I'll Hang My Harp on the Willow, Weeping Willow Tree on the Willow Tree. Right. I'll hang my harp on a willow tree. I'm off to the wars again. My peaceful home has no charm for me. The battlefield has... You're listening to a recording from the Flanders Ballad Collection performed, as the introduction said, by Mabel Wilson Tatro of Springfield, Vermont, in 1958. This recording was part of a decades-long project sponsored by the Vermont Commission on Country Living and led by Helen Hartness Flanders to amass and document folk music throughout northern New England. Beginning in 1930, Flanders and her associates put an open letter in New England newspapers requesting anyone who knew folk music passed down in the oral tradition to share what they knew and consent to be recorded so that the songs and the music could be transcribed. No popular songs or copywritten material was accepted into the archive. Only songs passed from one generation to the next by mouth. Most of the music has strong ties to the folk music traditions of the British Isles, to which the majority of the population of rural New England could trace at least one family line, many themselves being first or second generation immigrants from Quebec or the Canadian Maritimes. The recording project came about at a time when the face of life in New England was changing. Post-World War I, populations were moving. The economy was becoming ever more industrialized, and people were being pulled away from small towns to find work. As they became accustomed to the ways of life in larger towns and cities, hints of the modern began to seep into even the most far-flung villages. Some places were being outfitted with electricity, which meant appliances like radios, providing a steady stream of outside entertainment one that was less reliant on old-fashioned, homegrown ways, so the process of passing down music and stories by mouth was quickly fading. The Vermont Commission on Country Life wanted to get as much of this oral culture committed to the record before it was forgotten completely. The Flanders Ballad Collection catalog has since been digitized and is available from the archives of the special collections at Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont and it's with their very gracious permission that I play these samples here today. Within an oral culture, songs are a simple medium that serve a complex function. They were designed to preserve a people's history and were integral to how they socialized as they were often shared among a group. They needed to be easy for the teller and the listener to remember, so to that end, writers often set their songs to well-known hymns and dance tunes. But their format was malleable. Keep the words, but use a different tune you liked better or was easier to sing. And while a song's main purpose might have been to pass on a history, there was nothing saying it couldn't also be entertaining. Often, local place or family names were substituted to make the story resonate with the audience. But no matter the changes, 
there's always a core of truth to the stories these songs tell, giving its people a sense of community, identity, and pride. And that's comforting, isn't it? Yet, there is one song in the Flanders Ballad Collection that highlights the discomfort that also existed among all that continuity. It was performed by Mabel Wilson-Tatro in this 1958 session and is called The Sun Cook Tragedy. It's about a murder that took place in 1875 in Sun Cook, New Hampshire, a village in the town of Pembroke, just east of Concord, the state capital. The song's sweet melody runs counter to the jarring lyrics, detailing the abduction, rape, murder, and decapitation of a 17-year-old girl, Josie Langmaid, at the hands of one of the earliest known serial killers in the United States, Joseph LePage. Come all young people, now draw near. Attend a while and you shall hear how a young person of renown was murdered in fair Sun Cook town. It was in the morning, very cool, when Josie started for her school. And many the time that road she'd passed, but little thought she it would be her last. It was at the foot of Pembroke Street, La Paisley ambushed with a stick. Long time ago his plans were laid to take the life of this fair maid. The mother watched with eager care, hoping her mouth daughter would appear. But when the shades of night drew near, her darling child did not appear. The weeping father and the son, all through the woods their search begun, and found at last to their surprise the murdered child before their eyes. Her head was from her body torn, her clothes were all a crimson gore, and on her body marks did show some skillful hand had dealt the blow. This monster now so deep in crime, he thought the people's eyes to blind, but found at last to his mistake they had him fast behind the grate. It was a conquered he was tried, until the last his crime denied. But he was found to guilty be, and the judge said, let's say, death is your plea. And now, LePage, your work is done, and you, like Ephews, must be hung. For we must all examples make, till crime shall cease in the granite state. I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 1. Uh, Mrs. Tatro is going to tell more about the, Le, Le, the man LePage. My father was a violinist, and he played uh, the uh, violin at a... Uh, at a tavern in St. Albans, Vermont. And he see this man sitting over in the corner, and he asked uh, the landlord, who is this man? I've never seen him before. And the man told him his name was LePage. And he was the one that killed this girl in Suncook Town. Well, why wasn't he, uh, wasn't he uh, himself uh, punished for it? Well, he uh, had killed a 
a uh, girl in, uh, in St. Albans, what they call St. Albans Hill. And uh, nobody knew who had done it until after he'd killed this girl in Suncook Town and his wife came out and said he was the one that killed this girl in St. Albans. Well, why was he living? Why didn't they punish him after the, uh, after the two murders? They did. He oh, they did. Well, I think it's down here. Yeah. Yes, yes. Now, I've been to Pembroke in Suncook Town. Yes. And there's a monument that has been put up for this Josie, Josie Langmaid. And you don't have to really go that far off the beaten track to find it to be close to it, which is... About 15 years ago, I was working in the town of Pembroke, New Hampshire, driving back and forth, doing a survey on Academy Road. It's a mostly rural stretch, just off the main drag in town, with patches of woods and wetland, mixed with suburban homes every couple hundred feet. Got my keys. My hat. Maybe not. And there, on the north side of the road, right across from the entrance to the Three Rivers School, was a lonely, out-of-place-looking gray marble obelisk. Not a cemetery, I knew, because, of course, I scouted the area ahead of time. But nerd of many hats that I am, I couldn't resist an out-of-place side-of-the-road marker because you just know it's something weird and it's something good. This is where I first learned about Josie Langmaid. The monument here says Langmaid, and the front part of it has a shield carved into the face of it, and it said, erected by the citizens of Pembroke, in vicinity to commemorate the place of the tragic death in the memory of Josie A. Langmaid, a student of Pembroke Academy who was murdered here on her way to school on the fourth day of October, 1875. Age, 17 years, 10 months, and 27 days. And so it's actually a lovely spot off to the side of the road and there's all sorts of, looks like there's a trail out back that may take us to the other parts because it says on the, on another face of it, it says the body found 90 feet north at Stone Hub, head found 82 rods north at Stone Hub. So we should go out and take a look at that, probably, see if we can find those stone hubs. All right, let's go off on this little trail here, see what we find. There 
Here's one of the stone markers. So yeah, she wasn't very far off the road, but enough. I mean, if this woods back on that day was anything like today, you wouldn't, somebody hiding behind a large tree, you would not see them even close to the road if it was very brushy and how quickly you would disappear into the woods with them. It's not like it is today where there's cars going by every 30 seconds. Now, admittedly, this story is pretty gruesome, even to me. A seasoned true crime fan and former forensic anthropology student who attended crime scenes and autopsies. Just be warned, there are parts of the story coming up that are quite graphic. But take heart, because just as the details of this crime are but one part of the story, they are also but one part of this podcast. I want people to enjoy my podcasts, but I don't wish to traumatize or trigger anyone. So Joseph LePage will not be the story here, unlike most modern true crime, which tends to focus on the perpetrator. Sure, he was a serial killer, but I'm being honest when I say he was only as special as any other serial killer in that he was a sociopath, a psychopath, a sadist, and a narcissist, which essentially means he was nothing more than a mentally ill bully who manipulated, abused, and took out his frustrations on the weak. To me, there's nothing remotely interesting about that. So I won't be spending any more energy than is necessary to discuss him. Because you know what? Fuck that guy. We're here to talk about Josie, her family, and her community. That is the story. If you still want to hear the show but would rather avoid hearing the details about the crime, you might be happier to wait for part three of episode four, which will be released in a few weeks. Please. Come back for the rest of the story. For those of you still with me, I'm going to get us started by referring to a description of the murder of Josie Langmaid as printed in The History of Pembroke, New Hampshire, 1730-1895, by Carter and Fowler, pages 226-227. to It gives a clear, succinct overview of the case, which I'll expand upon after. On Monday morning, October 4th, Buck Street was the scene of one of the most atrocious murders of all times. Miss Josie A. Langmaid, daughter of James F. Langmaid, living on Buck Street, about a mile and a half from the academy, was on her way to school, when within a quarter mile of the academy, was waylaid by an assassin, dragged into the woods about ten rods, outraged and her head severed from her body. As her brother, who went earlier to school, supposed she had decided to stay home, and her parents, that she was at school, she was not missed till her brother returned home. Then naturally there was anxiety. Neighbors were notified, and search was made by lantern, resulting about 8.30 p.m. in the discovery of the headless trunk. The agony of the father and brother as they caught sight of the mutilated form can only be imagined. 
On a renewal of the search the next morning, the missing head was found under some small trees about seventy rods away in a northwesterly direction. Her school books were found by the roadside, only a few feet from the place where she was dragged into the bushes. Also, a red oak club, one and three-quarter inches square, and three feet eight inches long, with which the fatal blow was struck. One end had been freshly cut off, and the other had the corners whittled off to enable the assassin to hold it more firmly. It was broken into three pieces, witnessing the strength of the blow. The post-mortem examination, among other bruises, disclosed the print of the heel on her right cheek, and a cast of it was taken as a means of identifying the assassin. The murder caused great excitement in Pembroke and neighboring towns, and hundreds of people for days visited the scene of the tragic deed and the home of the victim. Meanwhile, the selectman, Officer Hilrith, and a couple of detectives from Boston were untiring in their endeavors to find and bring to justice the murderer. The funeral, which took place at 11 a.m. Wednesday, October 6th, drew together a large assemblage, the students of the academy attending the body, wearing crepe on the left arm. The services were conducted by Rev. H. Dorr and Rev. T. H. Goodwin, clergyman of Suncook. Efforts to capture the murderer were successful. October 13th, Joseph LePage, a French woodchopper, was arrested and lodged in jail at Concord. On searching his house, evidence tending to criminate him were found, and facts of his history learned, furnishing additional confirmation of his probable guilt. After two trials, he was convicted and sentenced to be hung. Accordingly, in March of 1878, he thus suffered the just penalty of his awful crime. The victim was nearly eighteen years of age, ladylike, a good scholar, and beloved by everybody. This description of the crime, put together some twenty years after the fact, is concise and accurate. In part, because this story was so well documented in its time, and many original sources for details still existed in print in 1895 when the account was written. But also, this crime so haunted and horrified the citizens of Pembroke and the populations of New Hampshire and Vermont at large that no one could forget it, even if they wanted to. Transcripts of the first trial of Joseph LePage show how the prosecution set up a very clear chronology for Josie on the day of her death. She set out from the Langmaid home late, as she waited for a friend with whom she often walked to school. Her 15-year-old brother Waldo, tired of waiting for the girls and not wanting to be late for school, left without Josie. Her school friend never came, and Josie's stepmother, Sarah Cochran Langmaid, testified Josie set out on her own at 8.45 a.m. on a route that took her west from her home on Buck Street toward her school on Academy Road. The court proceedings called forth several witnesses who also testified to seeing Josie on that day as she walked to school. It followed her progress in detail, 
saying where and when people saw her, and established with her family that none of them had seen her after she left the house that morning, and no one had seen her at school. So no one realized she was missing until later in the day, when Waldo returned home from school. Since she wasn't at school, he assumed she just decided to stay home. But her stepmother, having seen her leave, assumed she had been at school. A search for Josie was organized, and men from all over the town came to help, including Waldo, and Waldo and Josie's father, James. They searched well past dark, and at 8 p.m., less than a quarter mile from the school, off in some brushy overgrowth around the Giles Swamp, search volunteer Daniel Merrill found Josie's body not far off into the woods. As if the fact that she was dead wasn't sickening enough. Merrill must have been aghast to find her prone, breast exposed, skirts flung up and saturated in blood, and that she had been decapitated. Her head was discovered a bit farther into the woods by another volunteer, Horace Ayer, wrapped in her own cloak. Josie's remains were gathered, and as there were no such things as funeral homes or coroner's facilities at the time, were taken back to her house. Dr. George Larrabee, a local physician who also participated in the search, testified that no examination of the body took place there in the woods, other than to note what was superficially visible. However, the next day, Dr. Larrabee performed a post-mortem at the Langmaid home, assisted by Drs. Hildreth, Phillips, Kimball, Coroner Aaron Whittemore, and witnessed by other town officials. Dr. Larrabee testified that the decapitation appeared to have been done cleanly, signifying the use of a sharp knife. However, there seemed to be more of a hacking action towards the back of the neck, leaving the vertebrae unjoined. Adding to that, Josie's head suffered a significant amount of trauma perimortem, at or around the time of death. There were cuts and swellings on both sides of her head, likely caused by the broken and bloody wooden club found at the scene the next day. She also had a distinctive semicircular bruise on her left cheek, which, after he cleaned the blood in the dirt away, showed it to be consistent with that of a heel of a boot, complete with tiny circular impressions similar in size, shape, and layout to the nails used at the time to adhere a heel to the bottom of a boot. In an effort to preserve that soft tissue evidence, Larrabee said he made a careful drawing on cardstock of the layout of the alleged nail impressions he observed on Josie's skin. He went on to say that she had three broken bones in her left hand, perhaps from the struggle or from her defense. And in the most graphic and shocking part of his testimony, he said that not only had Josie very likely been raped, but that her external sexual organs were cut away, as well as half of her vagina. Due to the unusually sensational nature of this crime, it was reported far and wide, with stories showing up in newspapers up and down the eastern seaboard, many reports appearing in the New York Times. It was quickly apparent 
that the scope of this crime was well beyond the abilities of the local constabulary, and so arrangements were made to bring in expert investigators from Boston. A private investigator, Moses Sargent, a former captain of the Boston Detective Force, was hired by the state's attorney general to lead the investigation. And I have to say that though they may have been lacking in knowledge and facilities by today's standards of forensic crime scene investigation, the parties working this crime did conduct their work with a surprising amount of scientific rigor. They tried as best they could to gather multiple bits of corroborating information and evidence, and followed what we would call a chain of custody for physical evidence, a protocol that establishes a record of the origin of all physical evidence and documents anyone to whom that evidence may have been transferred. They at least had some of our modern understanding of the necessity of a systematic approach for evidence gathering and its bearing on any criminal court proceedings that might be forthcoming. Yet, there were some ways in which these investigators struggled with issues that aren't as much modern as they are eternal. Right from the beginning of the investigation, the detectives began rounding up the usual suspects, namely racial, social, and cultural minorities. They promptly arrested Charles Moore, the only black man in town, a number of vagrants in the region, and William Drew, a very poor man who happened to live near the Langmaids. Based on testimony from an eyewitness, the police were sure Drew was their man, Drew had caught wind of the evidence against him and tried to leave town, but police caught up with him before he made it far. Drew's arrest, along with his supposed accomplice, Charles Moody, seemed to satisfy the police and the public, but some weren't willing to wait for justice to run its course. As Drew and Moody were being escorted to jail, they were met by an angry mob of citizens, ready to lynch them on the spot. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed. Because the alibis for all of the men picked up for the crime eventually checked out. And that damning eyewitness testimony that got Drew and Moody arrested was recanted under oath. All were released, and investigators found themselves back at square one. But not for long. This has been The Secret Life of Death, Episode 4, Langmaid, Part 1. Special thanks for this episode go to Jennifer Vanell and Badger Studios for musical performance and arrangement. Tom Dernford, voice actor. The Middlebury College Special Collections, Flanders Ballad Collection for the use of the original recordings of Mabel Wilson Tatro. And thanks to Denver Percussion, Denver, Colorado. For more information about this show, go to our website at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 